Building on a Firm Foundation Basics of the Catholic Faith A Catechism Series by David Rodriguez Sponsored by the Fatima Center Episode 12 Is Scripture Infallible? A Question and Answer Session Given on September 15, 2020 Praise be Jesus and Mary I'm David Rodriguez, Content Director for the Fatima Center, and we're building on a firm foundation as we study the basics of our Catholic faith. Today our episode will be a little different because we're going to deal with questions that you have sent and answers to those questions. So I do thank you for those questions. We'll go through as many as we can today, but first let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Under thy patronage, dear Mother, and invoking the mystery of thine immaculate conception, I desire to pursue my studies and my literary labors. I hereby solemnly declare that I am devoting myself to these studies chiefly to the following end, that I may better contribute to the glory of God and to the spread of thy veneration among men. I pray thee, therefore, most loving Mother, who art the seat of wisdom, to bless my labors and thy loving kindness. Moreover, I promise with true affection and willing spirit, as it is right that I should do, to ascribe all the good that shall occur to me therefrom, wholly to thine intercession for me in God's holy presence. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So we've gotten several interesting questions. Thank you. Please do continue to send those as these shows go on. The first one is from Mr. Juan Martinez, and he asks... Why did God the Son, in his holy death, say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So this is one of the famous seven last words that our Lord utters while he is hanging upon the cross. This one comes from the Gospel of St. Matthew, and as one of those seven last words, it certainly received quite a bit of commentary. The first thing to say really is a very general answer to Scripture, and that is because we're dealing with these great mysteries, the depth of God, there's always going to be more. So I will provide an answer. It certainly is not going to be complete. There is always more. There is always greater depth. I think one of the errors that we can make in reading the sacred scriptures is that we want a kind of one-to-one -one correlation. We want to say, this thing was said, or this thing symbolizes this. And we want to limit it to just one thing. That's not a good way to read the scriptures. In a recent show, Mr. Kennedy Hall even talked about how we're supposed to interpret the scriptures, the four different levels that the Church Fathers gives us, as explained in the Catechism of the Church. Obviously, we always start with the literal. And then we can move to some of the spiritual meanings, of which there can be many. And that's why I'm saying that, an answer will probably be incomplete, especially with some of these very profound and deep things like the words which our Lord Jesus Christ is saying at the very last moments, hours of his life here upon earth. Okay, so with that said as preliminary, we now will look at it. another resource you might want to get. Always a good place to turn. It's called the Haydock Bible. It is the Douay Rheims, so that's the English translation of the Latin Vulgate. Very important that you use that particular translation of the scriptures, because many others introduce a lot of errors. So this is Father Haydock. He was an English priest living in the 
18th century, from about, I think it was 1774 to 1849, so 18th and 19th centuries, but he went ahead and compiled this based off of the Douay Rheims and also Bishop Challenger's updating of the Douay Rheims. It's got a great commentary. That's actually why I like it, because for a lot of verses, it will explain, especially some of the difficult passages, which Father Haydock has compiled for us. So it's a good Bible to have. And that's actually the first place I would turn to for a question like this. And so what is very clear is that, this comes from a lot of the fathers also, our Lord is uttering a prayer. Okay, We unfortunately are unfamiliar with the Psalms, or not as familiar as our Lord and the Jews of his time would have been. Our Lord would have had all 150 Psalms memorized. That was the bread and butter of the prayer of the Jews. Just like we have the Our Father and the St. Michael and the Hail Mary and the Memorari and various other prayers memorized, the Jews, and certainly our Lord, our Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, they would have had the 150 Psalms memorized. So this is the first line of one of those Psalms, Psalm 21. I strongly encourage you to look it up and to read it. And especially as you read it, think, this is our Lord praying this prayer on the cross. So I think if you read Psalm 21 with that in mind, that our Lord is hanging on the cross and he's making this entire prayer of Psalm 21, it will make perfect sense to you as to why our Lord chose that particular psalm. It describes his passion. It actually, in many ways, I thought of doing a talk on this where it mirrors the 15 decades of the rosary. I mean, different line after line. It's, you can almost tie them to the mysteries of the rosary. Work on that as maybe meditation. That's a good thing to do. It ends, obviously, with the glorious resurrection. So it's going to talk about our Blessed Mother and our Lord in her womb. It will talk about being delivered from enemies. How I will glorify and praise God forever. How God will have dominion over all things in the earth. And towards the very end, I think maybe the last verse or the second to the last verse is... To him, referring to God, to him my soul shall live and my seed shall serve him. And obviously all of us Christians are the seed of Christ born through baptism. So it ends on a very, you could say, triumphant, glorious, resurrection type note. This is the prayer that our Lord is offering from the cross. Okay, And just like many times, if there's something very uh, well known in Contemporary society, you don't have to say the whole thing. You can just give a first line. In secular things, you might think, I might tell you, Oh, Jose, can you see? And I might stop right there. I'm not a very good singer, I'm sorry. But I might just say that a little bit, and everybody knows what I've just started to do. You can actually fill in the rest of the tune and the words in your head. Similarly, in a Catholic context, I might say, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the rest of you then could begin that Hail Mary, and you would pray it yourselves, even though we prayed silently. That's actually done in some monastic communities. They intone the Our Father. They say, Our Father. And then it goes quiet, and every monk is praying the Our Father quietly by themselves. Much as we would even do at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, while the priest prays the Our Father out loud, we're praying it quietly. So when you intone that first line, it tells the rest of the people that are there, pray the rest of the psalm. On a real sort of physical note, as you may know, when someone's hanging on the cross, they are dying from asphyxiation. They're hanging. And just like if you were to hang off, uh, off the monkey bars, you can't breathe very easily. And to breathe, you got to pull yourself up, right? One who has been crucified, every time they want to breathe, they need to pull themselves up. And you can just imagine how painful that is because you've got the nails in your hands and your 
various nerves and feet, but you've got to stand yourself up nonetheless just to get some breath so you can speak. So our Lord doesn't need to pray the entire Psalm 21, just the fact that he intones it is the rest of his prayer. So I would say by far, that is the clearest and most literal meaning of why our Lord says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's what everyone around him would have understood. He's quoting Psalm 21. In fact, they know he's praying. There's a reference to that from the people down below on the ground beneath him. It certainly is prophetic. So it speaks of his passion and what he has done. We could say that at this moment he is proclaiming to all, he is witnessing, saying, I have fulfilled these prophecies of scripture. Look to Psalm 21 and see how well my own life and what I'm doing right now fulfills it. So it's prophetic. That actually is coming also from Father, a Jesuit priest, Cornelius Alapide. You may hear his name often. He was a Flemish from the area around Belgium. He was a Flemish priest living shortly after the Council of Trent from 1567 to 1637. And Father Alapide put together a great compilation of commentary on sacred scripture, mostly collected from the fathers. And so it's a, it's a great biblical commentary to have, and you can often hear people reference, well, Cornelius Alapide states. It usually isn't even Cornelius Alapide stating this, because he's really categorizing and, and cataloging and accumulating the wisdom of many centuries on scriptural commentary. So, uh, Father Cornelius Alapide does speak of how it's a prophecy. He mentions also very specifically that no one should ever think that this is a cry that Christ gives out in despair. That's an impious thought generated by the arch-heretic John Calvin. That would obviously be a sin, and our Lord is without sin. So he could not commit a sin. So anything that implies uh, sim something sinful, you must automatically reject and say, that's a false interpretation, because we know a priori, Jesus Christ is God, and Jesus Christ did not commit any sin himself. So it's certainly not a cry of despair. I think sometimes, some people talking about the scriptures want to go in that direction. A couple of other things we could say is that it certainly is touching on the mystery of redemption. Christ does take on himself all of our sin. Every sin that will ever be committed in the world, Christ takes it on himself. And so one could say this is the perhaps most fitting response that one would give when they have the weight of the sin on the world, even when one is in a great mortal sin, not that God has forsaken you, but that sin separates us from God. And so we feel as if we're forsaken from him, that he has turned away from us because of our sin. Well, imagine if you had all the sin in the world on you, as our Lord specifically does have. And then from another way we could look at it through what's called, fancy word here, I'm sorry, but it's, it's a good word to learn, the hypostatic union. Okay, this is just a theological term, very precise, referring to the person of Jesus Christ, namely this mystery of the Incarnation, that he is one divine person, but he has two natures that are separate and distinct. He has the divine nature, and he has a human nature. Okay, that's what the hypostatic union refers to, this union of the divine nature and the human nature in the one, in the one divine person of Jesus Christ. So, one of the things about the scriptures that sometimes makes it a little... Um, you know, not tricky to read, it really isn't. You just have to have faith. You need that faith to understand it. It can lead to some confusion. Is that sometimes our Lord speaks as to his divinity, and sometimes our Lord speaks as to his humanity. Even the very simple statement that we could say, obviously Jesus Christ died on the cross. 
To deny that would be heresy. He did die. It's a true death. He really died, and his body and his soul were separate. Okay, but Jesus Christ is God. We know that also. So, we can say, God died on the cross. Or God died, if we just want to put it very simply. Now that does sound, that jars us. We don't like to say God died. And you really probably shouldn't say it that way, because that can leave yourself open to bad interpretation. You know, like what uh, Friedrich Nietzsche blasphemously said, you know, God is dead. Things like that. We don't want to lean in that direction. So a more precise way to speak would be to say, God died as to his humanity, or God died in his humanity. And that's what the church fathers would say and how they sort of describe this mystery. So sometimes we have to put like this little clause to be more specific as to his divinity or as to his humanity because Christ has the powers of the divine and the powers of the human because he's got both those natures. So when he says something like, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is very clearly speaking as to the humanity, certainly not as to the divinity. And this has been a problem that's plagued Christianity for a while with heresies. For example, the Arians would take a statement that our Lord says in John's Gospel, the Father is greater than I. And they would try to use that to show that the Trinity isn't real. They say, look, here's a scriptural passage. Clearly our Lord is saying that the Father is greater so they can't be equal. Well, no, because you have to understand there he is speaking as to his humanity. In that same Gospel of St. John, not very far, another passage very close by, he'll say something to the effect of the Father and I are one. Okay, there he's also speaking as to his divinity. So you do have to sort of understand that and not misinterpret the scriptures. And finally, we could say symbolically, Father Lapidae mentions numerous different things that various church fathers have mentioned. It could be our Lord speaking for the Jewish people who have been forsaken in the sense that the old covenant is now gone and the new covenant is established. So referring more to the covenant, that that's been forsaken. It could refer also to the fewness of the saved. It could be a plea that each one of us makes that we might not be forsaken. That because Christ has taken on our sin and forsaken by God in the context we've explained, we won't be forsaken because our sin has been put on to Christ. It could even be the kind of cry that the soul gives once it is in hell because it has succumbed to sin. But the mystery of sin and redemption are definitely tied into there. And our Lord has taken on all that sin. All of those are some of the more profound and deeper meanings. Just make sure that whenever you're understanding the scriptures, you never violate any teaching of the church. For example, the impious kind of thought that a heretic like Calvin would say that our Lord falls into despair or something like that. I think it is easy to read that into it, uh, and we have to be cautious about something of that sort. So that was a very good question. Another question that comes to us, we'll stay with a couple more just here from the scriptures, because it seems like that was a theme. Someone asked, what does the keys given to St. Peter represent? This is a reference to the passage, again, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 16, 16, uh, 17, 18, those verses. Again, because in Scripture, there's going to be certainly numerous different meanings that this may have. However, this is one of those passages where the church has clearly and definitively, I'd say, infallibly taught that it certainly means this. Okay, So this is the clearest thing that it does mean, without a doubt, it could mean more things. It primarily means, the reference to the keys are, the primacy that St. Peter has over the whole church. And the successors of St. Peter, the vicar of Christ, the popes, through and in the person of St. Peter. Now you can go to Pastor Eternus, chapter 2. Pastor Eternus is that document on the papacy, which came from the first Vatican Council, wherein that is taught. 
So that's been taught very clearly. Again, Pastor Eternus, chapter 2. You can look that up, First Vatican Council on the Internet, and read it for yourself. Going back to the commentary that Father Haydock has, he also explains it very clearly. He says, this expresses the supreme power and the prerogatives of the Prince of the Apostles, namely St. Peter. And he gives some, you know, examples. So he elaborates, so he'll say things like loosing the bands, because remember, when he gets the keys, he has the power to loosen the bind. So loosing the bands can refer to the temporal punishment due to sin, indulgences, the absolving of sins. Whereas the power to bind can also be that power that the church has, that Peter has, not to absolve or to assign penance for sins or to issue excommunications, suspensions, and interdictions. Also to make laws that govern the church, which bind the faithful. For example, not eating meat on Friday. That's a church law, and it binds us. If we intentionally go out and eat meat on Friday just to say, ah, I'm going to eat it anyway, that, well, we'll talk about that another Maybe someone will have a question on that. I don't want to go into that topic right now because we're running out of time. But um, also determining what is the faith of the church by her official judgments and definitions. So the power to say, this is an infallible dogma revealed by our Lord, which all must accept you know, in order to be Catholic and in order to be saved. All of those things are wrapped up in this power of the keys that our Lord entrusts to St. Peter. But it is a it is a divine power. He is sharing the power that he has as God, with Peter, as his representative here on earth. And again, the simple answer, the primacy of Peter over the whole church. One last question for today, and that was, are the doctrinal books in the Bible infallible? The very simple answer is yes, categorically yes. And now, now just to elaborate on that a little bit, I'm really just answering the question, are the books in the Bible infallible? Or is the Bible infallible? And the answer is yes. Okay, Every Catholic must believe this. This is a dogma of the faith. I'm actually not sure what the doctrinal books are. That's the way I received the question. So I, I'm not sure what that distinction refers to, the doctrinal books, or if it just means the doctrine presented in Scripture. So unclear on the question. But because it's asking if the Bible is infallible, every aspect of the Bible is. That is a teaching of the church that has really come under attack Today, very much so, but really in the last 100 years, it's one of the great attacks of modernism, the modernist heresy, and it's probably the first place that the modernists really launched their attack. Much of the questioning of the inerrancy and the inspiration of sacred scriptures started out with liberal Protestant exegetes in the 1800s, a lot of them being German. But you can look up this very easily. So, for example, just as recently as in 1920, in his encyclical Spiritus Paraclitus, Pope Benedict XV referred to all kinds of teachings saying this was infallible. Pope Leo XIII, the Council of Florence, the Council of Trent, the First Vatican Council, and ultimately, that Holy Scripture is inerrant because God himself is the author of sacred scripture. Okay. This question actually ties in well with the episode we just did on papal teaching against heresy. Uh, we talked about the heresy and differentism, but this would be, let's say, the heresy of falsely understanding the scriptures, of claiming that the scriptures are not inspired. Pope Pius X also taught against this in his great document, Lamentabili Sane, that's his encyclical from 1907. It's very much like the Syllabus of Errors that Pius IX put together back in 1864, but Pius X is specifically condemning errors of the modernists. And so one of the errors that the modernists propose, again, what I'm about to say is an error, it is condemned, so you have to go with the opposite. This is the error. Divine inspiration 
does not so extend to all sacred scripture that it fortifies each and every part of it against all error. That is incorrect. So in fact, divine inspiration does extend to all sacred scripture precisely to fortify each and every part against all error. That's the Catholic truth. That's an infallible dogma we all have to believe. You can go back also to Pope Leo XIII, great document called Proventissimus Deus, which he wrote in 1893. It's his encyclical on the sacred scriptures. Here I'm quoting from Denzinger. This is number 1787, where it's quoting that encyclical. Here's what Pope Leo writes. The books, all and entire, which the Church accepts as sacred and canonical with all their parts, have been written at the dictation of the Holy Ghost. As far as it is from the possibility of any error being present to divine inspiration, that it itself not only excludes all error, but excludes it and rejects it as it is necessarily that God, the highest truth, be the author of no error whatsoever. This is the ancient, uniform faith of the Church, defined also by the solemn opinion at the councils of Florence and of Trent, finally confirmed and more expressly declared at the Vatican Council. So Pope Leo is saying, look, yes, every single part of sacred scripture is inerrant as an inspired because it has God as its author. And just as like there can be no error in God, no untruth, no deceit, nothing wrong in what God himself would say. He is truth himself. Then if he's the author of the sacred scriptures, there can be no error in the sacred scriptures. Again, very important to notice what Pope Leo does. He is rooting the lack of error in scripture, the inerrancy, and the inspiration of sacred scripture precisely in God himself. So that logically, if you deny that the scriptures are inerrant, then you're denying God either that he's the author of the scriptures or that he himself would be inerrant and that somehow error could enter into God. That's why this is such a terrible and pernicious evil, sinister error, and all Catholics must reject it. Uh, it's not being rejected today, unfortunately, but yes, the sacred scriptures are inerrant. You can go back to Florence, the Council of Florence, in Denzinger, that's number 706, or the Council of Trent, in Denzinger, that's citation number 783, and then you can also go back to the First Vatican Council. This is actually De Filius, which we've talked about in a previous episode. This is just one of those paragraphs that we didn't get around to reading. Uh, it is on Revelation. And there, this is what the First Vatican Council will say. Quote, And indeed, these books of the Old and New Testament, whole with all their parts, just as they were enumerated in the decree of the same council, are contained in the older Vulgate Latin edition, and are to be accepted as sacred and canonical. But the Church holds these books as sacred and canonical, not because, having been put together by human industry alone, they were then approved by its authority, nor because they contain revelations without error, but because, having been written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, they have God as the author, and as such, they have been handed down to the church itself. So that's the official teaching of the church. First Vatican Council, please do look it up. Note what they're saying. They're saying, yes, the scriptures are infallible, not just because they've been approved by the authority of the church, not only because they're revelation without error, but ultimately because they're inspired by the Holy Ghost and they have God as their author.
And that's about as definitive and clear as a teaching as you can get. No Catholic may go against this infallible dogma. Note also here what Vatican I is teaching, that all of the books, Old and New Testament, the whole book, all of their parts, just as they've been listed and approved by the Catholic Church. So, for example, the fact that the Protestants got rid of seven books of the Old Testament, that's a huge problem because those books are also infallible. This is saying the books that are approved by the Holy Catholic Church in the Vulgate edition. Not in a Hebrew version, not in a Greek version, not in an English, Spanish, German, or Italian version, but the Latin Vulgate edition. Those are to be accepted as sacred and canonical. Again, this is the teaching of Holy Mother Church, which today many Catholics have forgotten or are not learning, and of course many prelates are not teaching it, so we have got to recover and restore these teachings, which are part of the sacred deposit of the faith, part of our glorious Catholic tradition, the faith that God has given us, outside of which no man can be saved. That's all we have time for today. These questions are certainly more that we have received. Please keep sending them. We will go ahead and address them in future episodes. I do want to thank you very much for your continuing support of the Fatima Center. Greatly appreciate it. As always, please do consider including us in your monthly and your regular tithe. Including the Fatima Center as someone that you will support recognizing the importance of this apostolate in spreading the Catholic truth and the message of Our Lady at Fatima. Let's go ahead and close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And may God grant you a most blessed week. We'll see you here next time. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org.